the History Channel original podcast. It is with great pleasure that I announce the appointment of Robert F. Kennedy as Attorney General. In the appointments I have made, I have sought the most qualified men, men of ability, determination, and a desire to serve their country. I have applied that same test in this case. It's 1.45 p.m. Eastern Time on November 22, 1963, and Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy has his mind on the mob. He's having a working lunch with a few colleagues, including U.S. Attorney Robert Morgenthau, and they plan to discuss how to get organized crime under control in New York. But first, a swim. As Attorney General, Bobby continued to pursue organized crime. After all, that's why Robert Morgenthau was at his house that day. Bobby, his wife Ethel, and his colleagues lounged poolside at his estate in McLean, Virginia, enjoying a lunch of clam chowder and tuna fish sandwiches. It's a late fall day, but the sun is warm and bright. They talk shop while they eat. Soon, they'll really get down to business. But for now, just a few more minutes, they want to enjoy the weather. The Kennedys have two outdoor phones installed on the property. One of the phones rings. Bobby's wife takes the call. The operator tells her that FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover is on the line. Ethel immediately knows something is wrong. J. Edgar Hoover wouldn't call Bobby at home. The two men despise each other. They have different philosophies on civil rights, labor, justice, everything. Not to mention, Bobby knows Hoover is spying on his brother, collecting dirt just in case he needs something from the president. Ethel waves Bobby over and hands him the receiver, a worried look on her face. I have news for you. The president has been shot. I think it's serious. It's as simple as that. Bobby would later recall the dry tone in Hoover's voice as he delivers this terrible news. Bobby clasps his hand to his mouth. Jack is in danger. His best friend, his older brother, his president. There's nothing in the world Bobby can do to save him. And maybe, he thinks, maybe it's all his fault. This is 24 Hours After, The JFK Assassination, Episode 3, The Brother. I'm historian Steve Gillen. Last episode, we followed Lyndon Johnson as he struggled to steady the government after JFK's murder. One of Johnson's biggest challenges is taking power without alienating the Kennedy family. It's a task made more difficult by the subject of this episode, Robert Francis Kennedy. For much of his life, Bobby was overshadowed by other members of his famous family. His older brothers, Joe and Jack, received the lion's share of their father's attention, who believed that Bobby was too soft. Perhaps as a result, Bobby developed a tough, dark temperament. As an adult, he earned a reputation as a ruthless political operator, an aggressive lawyer, and above all, a fiercely loyal advisor to his brother Jack. After becoming president, Jack appointed Bobby to the position of attorney general. Bobby was just 36 at the time. 
the youngest cabinet member since Alexander Hamilton. And he wasn't just any attorney general. He was perhaps the most powerful person ever to hold the office, influencing everything from the price of steel to covert operations of the CIA. He was clearly Jack Kennedy's second in command, taking a role in the administration that Lyndon Johnson had always hoped would be his. But now, Bobby's brother is dead, and Lyndon Johnson is president of the United States. In the hours after the shooting, Bobby will be forced to balance his duty to his new boss with his desire to protect the legacy and secrets of his fallen brother. He'll undertake an anxious search to find JFK's killers, and all the while he'll be wondering, if not for his own actions, would Jack still be alive? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's 12.45 Texas time and 1.45 in Virginia, where Bobby Kennedy has received devastating news. His brother has just been attacked. Bobby can barely stand. Ethel runs to him. She throws her arms around him as he trembles. He's barely able to process the news, let alone say it out loud. But he forces himself to tell her, Jack's been shot. Hoover's terse call had provided few details. And so now Bobby scrambles to find out more, working the phones on a hunt for information. His first call is to Clint Hill, one of the Secret Service agents traveling with JFK in Dallas. He reaches him at Parkland Hospital, where the president is in surgery. They said, Mr. Hill, we're sorry, but the attorney general is on the phone and he wants to talk to you. And I said, okay. So I said, yes, Mr. Attorney General. And Bobby Kennedy, President's brother, who was attorney general, said... uh, Clint, what's going on down there? Agent Hill steals himself. Should he tell the attorney general what he's seen? That he has just watched the president take a bullet to the head? Does he tell the truth about the president's grave condition? Or does he reassure the attorney general and hope that the doctors can pull off a miracle? I did not want to tell Bobby Kennedy that his brother was dead. On the other end of the line, Bobby hears the agent hesitating. Finally, through the receiver, comes the answer. It's as bad as it could get. Bobby swallows hard. Not again, he thinks. New York, it's bon voyage to Mrs. Joseph P. Kennedy, who sails for London to join her husband, new U.S. ambassador to England. And five of the nine Kennedy children sail with Mrs. Kennedy. In the 50s and 60s, the Kennedys were perhaps the closest thing America had to a royal family. Joe Kennedy Sr. was a successful businessman, deeply influential in democratic politics. And his beautiful, accomplished children captured the envy and admiration of Americans everywhere. The details of their glamorous lives were headline news 
well before JFK became president. Here's historian Barbara Perry. Joe and Rose Kennedy were forces of nature producing nine children. If you looked at the resume of their children, uh, it's astounding to think that they accomplished so much, but of course, uh, also the objects of much tragedy. Bobby's parents, Joe and Rose, had high expectations for their kids. They wanted their girls to marry well, and Joe in particular envisioned positions of power and influence for his sons. But for all of their advantages, tragedy seemed to loom over the Kennedy clan. It was so prevalent that some even whispered of a Kennedy curse, and it came for the elder daughters first. It was a time when women, of course, were not thought to be able to run for office, so his ambitions went uh, solely to the boys to have political careers. Bobby's sister Rosemary suffered from seizures and violent mood swings. Doctors recommended that she be lobotomized, Joe gave the procedure the green light, but the surgery went awry, and Rosemary was left with extreme brain damage for the rest of her life. Another sister, Kathleen, fell in love with a married man. He planned to divorce his wife and wed her instead. Kathleen was warned that if she followed through with the marriage, she would be disowned. Distraught, she made plans to fly to Paris to plead with her father to change his mind. But her flight never arrived. It crashed in the south of France, instantly killing Kathleen, her fiancé, and two others. But perhaps no tragedy hit the Kennedys harder than the death of their eldest son, Joe Jr. Joe served as a pilot for the Navy in World War II, and in 1944, he volunteered for a top-secret mission codenamed Aphrodite. The premise of Operation Aphrodite was stunning. The Navy would fly planes filled with explosives directly into enemy targets. Joe Jr.'s assignment was to pilot a plane to a cruising altitude, arm the explosives, and parachute to safety before the plane crashed into its destination. But the explosives on Joe's flight accidentally detonated while he was still on board, killing him and his co-pilot. Bobby was heartbroken by Joe Jr.'s death. When the Navy dedicated a ship in his memory, the USS Joseph P. Kennedy Jr., Bobby requested to serve on board. Joe's death had other important consequences for the Kennedy family. First, Joe Sr. turned his focus to the career prospects of his next eldest son, Jack. When the announcement was made that Kennedy would enter the New Hampshire presidential primary of 1960, his father was by his side. It was a proud moment for the elder Kennedy. When Joe Jr. was killed in World War II, he put all of his money and all of his ambitions and all of his energies in just trying to see that Jack could become the first Catholic president of the United States, and indeed he did. And second, the relationship between Jack and Bobby became exceptionally close. The two men were very different. Bobby was eight years younger than JFK. While Jack was an optimist, Bobby was so dour that he was nicknamed Black Robert. But he looked up to Jack, and after so much misfortune, Bobby felt protective of the family that he had left. As Jack's political career took off, Bobby proved himself to be a fiercely loyal ally. He served as his brother's campaign manager in his 1952 Senate race, then again in 1958, and finally when JFK ran for the presidency in 1960. Here's historian Jeff Seschel, the author of Mutual Contempt. 
It was less of a social relationship than a working relationship, but it was very, very close. And it was absolutely intuitive. A lot of observers noted that they had a kind of unspoken language, that they could communicate with one another just by gestures, just by an expression on their faces. Tragedy has robbed Bobby Kennedy of three siblings already. And now, on the afternoon of November 22nd, 1963, as Agent Clint Hill hesitates on the other side of the telephone receiver, Bobby can feel a fourth slipping away. So Bobby decides to do what Jack would want him to do, protect the family. Hanging up the phone, Bobby considers his next move. His first instinct is to catch a flight to Dallas, to be there for his brother and Jackie. On the other hand, if Jack is dead, Bobby will have only a brief window to safeguard his and Jack's secrets before Lyndon Johnson comes snooping around. Bobby decides to stay in Washington, and his first call is to National Security Director McGeorge Bundy. He tells him flatly, change the locks on Jack's private files. Bundy agrees to transfer the most sensitive files to the executive office building where they will be placed under round-the-clock security. Next, Bobby orders the Secret Service to dismantle the taping system in the Oval Office and Cabinet Room. What was Bobby trying to hide? He might have been worried about Operation Mongoose, a secret plot to destroy Fidel Castro, the leader of Cuba, by any means necessary, even by assassination. Operation Mongoose was an extended series of efforts to overthrow the communist regime in Cuba on the notion that it was a destabilizing force in our hemisphere. And so there was an almost desperate set of attempts on the part of the U.S. government to overthrow the regime. Though it was a CIA mission, Bobby had personally taken charge of the operation. That alone was shocking. An attorney general directing the actions of the CIA. Here's Brian Littell a former CIA official and author of the book, Castro's Secrets. Since the CIA was created in 1947, I don't know of any other attorney general who was given the responsibility to keep his hand in detailed CIA clandestine operations. Bobby Kennedy did that, of course, with the full approval of the president. Acting, therefore, in the defense of our own security, I have directed that the following initial steps be taken immediately. Under Bobby's direct oversight, the United States carried out attacks against Cuban civilians and infrastructure. A strict quarantine on all offensive military equipment under shipment to Cuba is being initiated. It initiated propaganda campaigns designed to turn the Cuban people against their leaders. And infamously, it considered and sometimes attempted a series of creative schemes to murder Fidel Castro. One of them was, uh, Let's put a poison inside of a wetsuit, knowing that Fidel Castro liked to scuba dive. And when he put the wetsuit on, he would get affected by the poison and die. In retrospect, the plans sound like something out of a bad spy movie. To slip Castro an exploding cigar. To inject him with poison hidden inside a ballpoint pen. There was even a plot to turn Fidel's interest in seashells against him. The idea was, Castro, when he's scuba diving, likes to collect really beautiful shells from the seafloor. Let's rig one of those shells with an explosive device, and when he picks it up, it'll blow up. In short, it was a conspiracy so outrageous that if the details became public, 
it would seriously undermine JFK's legacy and potentially destroy any of Bobby's political ambitions. Any kind of revelations about these more dire, more ominous policies would have been very damaging to Kennedy's policies. And of course, not just in Latin America, but with allies in Europe and elsewhere as well. p.m. Eastern Time. 20 anxious minutes have passed since Bobby Kennedy received that first call from J. Edgar Hoover, informing him that his brother had been shot. Bobby's conversation with Clint Hill about Jack's status had not been encouraging, but he still held out hope that Jack might yet pull through. He's sitting in his library with Ethel and the director of the CIA, John McCone, when the phone rings again. It's Parkland Hospital confirming the worst. He cries out, half to Ethel McCone, half to himself. Oh, he's dead. Bobby needs to clear his head, so he takes a walk with an aide, Ed Guffman. I thought they would get one of us, he says to Guffman. I thought it would be me. Bobby can't shake the feeling that he is responsible for his brother's death. Could this attack be retribution for something he had done? Bobby had made dangerous enemies over his career, but which of them would dare do something this bold? The Cuban threat was at the forefront of his mind. Bobby had been a key player in shaping U.S. policy towards Cuba, including Operation Mongoose. If Bobby Kennedy was concerned in the immediate aftermath of his brother's death, how he might have been somehow responsible, then the greatest likelihood would have been Castro in Cuba that he was concerned that what he had been doing with the CIA could have led the Cubans to retaliate and to kill his brother. Here's Jeff Seschel again. There was a a widespread belief, not just on Robert Kennedy's part, but on a lot of people's part, that the United States was trying to assassinate Castro and instead Castro beat them to it and assassinated the United States president. But Cuba wasn't the only potential culprit. Another very real possibility was the Mafia. Before he was Attorney General, Bobby had made a name for himself serving as Chief Counsel to the Senate Rackets Committee. Robert Kennedy had very aggressively gone after crime figures during the 1950s when he was on on the Senate staff and in a series of brutal hearings, called them out, humiliated them, and directed the federal government against them and not just organized crime figures, but those like Jimmy Hoffa, whom they supported. This is a strike-breaking, union-busting bill, in my opinion. Mr. Hoffa, this bill is not a strike-breaking, union-busting bill. You're the best argument I know for it. Your testimony here this afternoon, people who hold responsible positions in your union come before this committee and take the Fifth Amendment because an honest answer might tend to incriminate them. Your complete indifference to it, I think, makes this bill essential. So Robert Kennedy made lasting, vicious enemies of, of many in the world of organized crime and understood that, that he was very likely in danger uh, himself as, as a result of all of that. As attorney general, Bobby continued to pursue organized crime. That's why Robert Morgenthau was at his house that day, after all. He formed a secret task force that became known as the Get Hoffa Squad. Bobby never succeeded in bringing Hoffa to justice, but he definitely managed to antagonize him. At one point, Bobby learned that Hoffa had hired a hitman to take him down. So maybe the mob has finally gotten their revenge, not by killing Bobby, 
but by killing the person whose death would hurt him the most. Hoping for more information, Bobby calls a colleague, a prosecutor in Nashville who's going after Hoffa, and asks him to do some digging. Next, he calls a Chicago lawyer with underworld connections, part of a network RFK maintains just on the mob's periphery. Please, Bobby asks him, tap into this, but be as discreet as possible. There's still one more possibility for Bobby to consider that Jack's killer could be someone or something closer to home. An organization just a five-minute drive from Hickory Hill in Langley, Virginia. Could the CIA be behind the attack in Dallas? Bobby believes that certain members of the CIA have developed a relationship with the mob. Case in point, the former CIA director, Alan Dulles. President Kennedy had recently fired Dulles, a wildly unpopular move within the intelligence community. Dulles favored violent, covert means of toppling foreign governments. And in fact, it was Dulles who had been in charge of the Bay of Pigs fiasco. Mr. Dulles, I know you've heard this many times, that there are people who say that we, with regard to the CIA, are waging a secret war with an invisible government. We are engaged in many facets of what is generally called the Cold War. But may I say this, at no time has the CIA engaged in any political activity or any intelligence activity that was not approved at the highest level. It was a poorly kept secret in Washington that Dulles would sometimes conspire with the mob, who had their own reasons for wanting to see Castro ousted. Could a combination of mob influence and anger over the firing of Alan Dulles have motivated the CIA to attack their own boss? If this sounds like a conspiracy theory, it's one that Bobby Kennedy took seriously. And it's why he summoned the new CIA director, John McCone, to his house as soon as he heard his brother had been assassinated. Bobby asks him point blank, did the CIA kill the president of the United States? McCone swears to Bobby that the CIA had no involvement, but Bobby doesn't know what to believe, especially when he learns later that afternoon that a shooter has been apprehended, an American, ex-military, with communist ties. But besides uncovering his brother's killer, Bobby has to deal with another problem that afternoon, Jack's successor, Vice President Lyndon Johnson. Forty minutes after learning of his brother's death, Bobby answers a call from Air Force One, which is idling on the tarmac in Dallas. LBJ, with his gruff Texas accent, is on the line, and he has a question that is as shocking as it is mundane. Johnson has an immediate concern in mind, a question that he feels that only Robert Kennedy can answer. Does he need to be sworn in right away? Bobby is stunned. Just minutes earlier, his brother was alive and well, gearing up for a re-election campaign and four more years in office. And now, here's Lyndon Johnson calling, asking about the oath of office. He called Robert Kennedy, and it was really, it was, it was inartful, it was insensitive, it was badly handled, and it was actually, uh, I think we could say, cruel, however unintentionally to put these kinds of practical questions to Robert Kennedy in his moment of grief, as if nobody else could, could answer those questions. This isn't the first time Lyndon Johnson has offended Bobby Kennedy. Bobby disliked him for many reasons. 
In particular, he had never forgotten a trip he'd made to Johnson's ranch in 1959. At his brother's request, Bobby was hoping to form an alliance with LBJ, but he found Johnson to be both dishonest and condescending. Here's Jeff Seschel. This was not something that Robert Kennedy had much experience doing. Uh, Johnson took them out to go hunt uh, some deer, and when Kennedy fired his rifle, the recoil hit him so hard it knocked him over. And Johnson, seeing an opportunity to really um, twist the knife, said, uh, boy, you've got to learn how to handle a gun like a man. Here's former Senator Fred Harris of Oklahoma, a colleague and friend of both men during the 1960s. Something was in the air between the two of them, Lyndon Johnson and Robert Kennedy, that dated back to those days and not just to the campaign of 1960, but it certainly dated to the campaign of 1960. When Jack Kennedy chose Johnson as his vice presidential nominee in 1960, Bobby made his disapproval known. Bobby Kennedy famously tried at the last minute to get LBJ removed from the ticket in 1960. He continues to have a strong sense of animosity throughout the period when LBJ was vice president. It's possible that Bobby was trying to have Johnson bumped from the re-election ticket in 1964. Johnson certainly thought so. All to say, LBJ is the last person Bobby wants to speak to in this moment. He's lost his brother and his president, and now he's being asked to help a man he hates step into Jack's role. Nonetheless, he calls his deputy attorney general, who in turn calls the Office of Legal Counsel. The game of phone tag goes on, but finally Bobby gets word that any federal judge can administer the oath. He gets Johnson back on the line and tells him that anybody can swear him in. Maybe you'd like to have one of the judges down there whom you appointed, he adds. Maybe he recommends that Johnson be sworn in right away, before Air Force One leaves Dallas. But later, Bobby will say that he doesn't remember it that way. He'll tell others that LBJ insisted on being sworn in immediately. By contrast, President Johnson will say that it was Bobby's idea. It's a moment of selective memory that will deepen their animosity in the years to come. Whatever happened on that phone call, a short time later, Bobby receives word that his brother's casket is in the air, accompanied by his advisors, Jackie, and the newly sworn-in president. Bobby springs into action. Robert Kennedy was waiting on the tarmac when the plane uh, from Dallas uh, landed. And as soon as it was opened up, he climbed up and pushed his way down the narrow corridors of the plane to try to find Jackie. He was single-mindedly focused on finding Jackie. Bobby is intent on protecting his brother's legacy. And that also means protecting Jackie from Johnson's political manipulations. During the flight from Dallas to Washington, LBJ carefully plans his exit from Air Force One. Knowing that the news cameras will be rolling when the plane lands, he intends to escort Jackie Kennedy down the gangway, projecting an image of unity leading into a brief speech. But RFK has other plans. After the plane lands, Bobby races through the crowded cabin, searching for Jackie in her pink suit. He mumbles, excuse me, to every person he passes as he pushes through the crowd. But when he feels himself brushed by Johnson, he doesn't stop to acknowledge his new boss. It's a slight that won't go unnoticed. Here's Jeff Seschel again. 
And this, of course, as one would expect, was seen as a horrific snub of, of the new president of the United States, that he didn't even acknowledge him. There were some on the plane who felt that Robert Kennedy didn't see him, that he had his head down, that he was just pushing, that he wasn't going to stop pushing until he got to Jackie. But it is not unthinkable that in Kennedy's grief and probably his rage at Lyndon Johnson at the idea that of all people who were now president of the United States, that it should be Lyndon Johnson, that he found it too difficult to be gracious in that moment. Finally, Bobby finds Jackie, still wearing her blood-stained suit. He scoops her up in his arms. I'm here, he says. Bobby helps Jackie into a waiting car. He gets in after her. They quickly depart for Bethesda Naval Hospital where Jack Kennedy's autopsy will be performed. Johnson will have to make his speech alone. This is a sad time for all people. We have suffered a loss that cannot be weighed. For me, it is a deep personal tragedy. I know that the world shares the sorrow that Mrs. Kennedy and her family bear. I will do my best. That is all I can do. The loss of his brother marks a turning point for Bobby Kennedy. Friends and colleagues will note a change in his demeanor, his outlook on life. Here's Senator Fred Harris. When I knew Robert Kennedy, he was obviously very damaged by the assassination of his brother. He couldn't even use the word brother in talking about him with me. He referred to him as the president to make it more impersonal. Robert Kennedy, in an instant in November 1963, effectively became the patriarch of the very large Kennedy family. And his two brothers uh, before him were now dead, and his father had been largely incapacitated by a stroke. So Robert Kennedy, in a sense, assumed the role of the leader of the family and also out of compassion as much as anything else understood that he needed to do everything he possibly could for Jackie, given the loss that, that she had just suffered. So that was an enormous focus of his, not just in the days and, and weeks after the assassination, but really for the rest of his life. After the assassination of John Kennedy, Robert Kennedy opened up really to the complexities of the world. His faith had been challenged. He did not view the world any longer through the kind of black or white lenses. He had a more uh, complex and nuanced understanding of humanity. Bobby had always been a fighter. He fought for his father's attention and approval. He fought moral wars against communism and the mafia. He fought political opponents like Lyndon Johnson. All that fighting had made him one of the most feared people in Washington. And it had earned him powerful enemies. Had it also cost him his brother's life? Bobby doesn't know. But what he does know is that the world has changed. He's no longer JFK's second-in-command. He's just an attorney general facing an uncertain future. He's no longer Jack and Joe's younger sibling. He's the leader of a troubled political dynasty. And he's no longer just Jackie's brother-in-law. They are both survivors of a trauma that will haunt them forever. 
And so Bobby's immediate priority is to protect her well-being. In the days ahead, he'll be a constant fixture at Jackie's side, offering support, protection, and comfort. But meanwhile, back in Dallas, law enforcement has a different priority, to find JFK's killer. And by the time Bobby and Jackie's car is en route to Bethesda Naval Hospital, they already have a suspect in custody. That's next time on 24 Hours After. Thanks for listening to 24 Hours After, a History Channel original produced by Awfully Nice and hosted by me, Steve Gillen. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. Special thanks to our guests, Senator Fred Harris, Clint Hill, Brian Littell, Mark Lawrence, Barbara Perry, and Jeff Seschel. 24 Hours After is written and produced by Jesse Burton and Jane Ackerman. Editing and sound design by Bang Audio Post. Our project manager is Kadi Kamakate. Our supervising producers are McKamey Lynn and Ben Dixstein. Our executive producers are Jesse Burton, Katie Hodges, Jesse Katz, and me, Steve Gillen. Special thanks to The Cutting Room and Haga Studios. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review 24 Hours After wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.